0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. We took a little hiatus from June until now, but we're back. We're in the middle of training camp. The 2019 season is fast approaching. I can't believe camp is – the Jets were actually breaking camp on Tuesday, and that's a signal that we're right around the corner from the uh, final roster cuts and which is always a hectic time, and then getting together. And before you know it, they're going to be on the field against the Buffalo Bills. Uh, I'm really fired up to continue this podcast. You know, the spring was kind of an appetizer. We did five or six. We had some great guests, and I received the positive feedback, and I really, really appreciate the support. And we're just going to keep on going with this show. We have a great show to kick this one off. Our guest in the next quarter will be pro football Hall of Famer Kevin Mowai, who is still on cloud nine from his weekend in Canton. And he was good enough to uh, he'll be spending some time with us. And uh, I have a feeling we're going to have a fun time taking a, a trip down memory lane and him talking about his uh, weekend in Canton. We're going to do Twitter questions in the third quarter and fourth quarter. I'll wrap it up a little bit for first five quick takeaways. On what I've seen so far in training camp, five, bang, 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 we'll do it, quick hitters. Uh, Number one, Sam Darnold has looked terrific. The the thing I notice, more zip on his passes than a year ago, better spirals. Uh, I think he attributes that to a a full season of uh, actual training for the NFL. Last year, of course, he was training for the draft. He may have had some arm fatigue. His arm looks fresh. It looks good. And this will help him how? Here's how. Last year, he had the second lowest completion percentage when throwing into tight windows. According to our next gen stats people, when you got a stronger arm, it'll help him on those tight window throws. So that's number one. Number two, Adam Gase. He's kind of an odd duck. You know, he's, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I think there's a method to his madness. He's a little bit unorthodox, but as Bill Parcells like to say, Football is not for well-adjusted people, and I think Adam fits into that category. Uh, he does some unusual things. He gives the players two days off after preseason games. His practice regimen is a little different. They do seven-on-seven stuff at the end. They run gassers in the beginning, and you're wondering, like, why is he doing this stuff? But he actually explained the reasons why the two days off, he wants it to feel like the regular season. You know, they always have Monday and Tuesday off. And the practice regimen, he wants them to get tired early in practice with the gassers so they can learn to combat fatigue during the practice, which, of course, they'll have to do on Sundays. And so there's a method to his madness, and I've been impressed with him. We'll see how it goes over over the long haul. Number three, concern. Uh offensive line, uh, they're banged up. Winters uh, injured, Osemile injured, Ryan Khalil is still not in full practice mode because he's getting in shape. So their starting five will not have played together a single snap, probably in the preseason before they face Buffalo in week one. And that's concerning. I mean, uh, chemistry counts for something. Continuity counts. And so they're going out there in week one as a starting five for the first time. That, to me, is a concern. The, the person who will feel the brunt of that, I think, is Le'Veon Bell because he needs to build that timing and that rhythm with the offensive line. Number four, let's talk about Le'Veon Bell. Uh, his reps have been increasing gradually early this week. He took a lot of workload uh he was getting knocked around he was getting banged around in practice and he liked it he you know he likes getting hit he says it simulates a game and uh don't know if he'll play thursday my sense is probably not i think much better chance in week 3 of the preseason and the last takeaway the cornerback situation. Oh, my God. Every day, it seems like there's a guy going down, Tremaine Johnson, a hamstring, Chiron Brown. A couple of weeks ago, we didn't even know who Chiron Brown was. Now he's got a hamstring injury. They are uh, really in dire straits there at cornerback. Uh You look ahead at the schedule. Week two, they face Baker Mayfield. Jarvis Landry and some guy named Odell Beckham uh, They Uh they, look it's going to be hard to find a cornerback they're going to have to make do with what they have barring a miracle trade that is a big concern going forward so that's the end of the first quarter we'll be right back with Kevin Moai And welcome back to the second quarter. This is The Green Room, a special guest each week. And we couldn't ask for a better guest to start off our uh, 2019 season. We have Kevin Mawai, Pro Football Hall of Famer, just back from Canton, Ohio. Thanks, Kevin, for
1: being here. I'm glad to be here, man. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, first of all, how does that sound? Does that have a ring to it? Kevin Moai, Pro Football Hall of Famer. How does that sound?
1: It it sounds pretty cool. To be introduced as Kevin Moai, former NFL player, is okay, but then... Now you have to use the Hall of Fame tag, and that just makes it that much better. So yeah. I like it. it; has a ring to it.
0: That'll totally follow you for the rest of your life, and it's well deserved. Uh, what an amazing weekend in Canton that must have been! Uh, was uh, we, we all saw the speech? It was an awesome speech. Was there a moment there during that whole you know few days that you were there where it just kind of hit you that like, hey, wait a minute, I'm in the Hall of Fame.
1: As you know, the, I got there on Wednesday before everything started. And so I kind of sat in the hotel lobby and just kind of relaxed a little bit. And then I just started seeing all these guys walking past me. And uh, I was like, holy cow, that's so-and-so and that's so-and-so. And and that was cool because I knew I was about to be one of those guys. But then there was a moment on Thursday morning, they had an autograph room where you could go sign things for charity. And I met Jack Youngblood for the very first time, Wow! and Joe Green was in there, and then Floyd Little came in, and he gave me a hug, and he goes, you're going to be one of the good ones, meaning, you know, to join the Hall of Fame, and that meant a lot to me. And I just, for a minute there, I got choked up. I left the room, I started walking back to my my hotel room, and just down the hallway by myself, and I was just like, oh my God, I'm a Hall of Famer now, and that's when it really hit me, and... I got I I did I got a little emotional. I mean I started crying going down the hallway thinking, I'm one of these guys. I'm one of them now and uh and that was kinda of when it really hit me the Thursday morning.
0: Wow that's a, that's a great anecdote. I mean was when you went there w- w- like looking back on it was there a a person that you got to meet like a hall of famer or a legendary player that you were dying to meet and you finally got to meet him when you were there?
1: No cuz I, I met like most of the players that I kind of admired growing up. i would met at one time or another and and so it wasn't like an awe factor like I you know like it would have been but, again, like, there's guys I know of and I've heard of that I've never seen before. And so then I walk in the room, and there's Mel Blunt right there. And I'm like, holy cow, that's Mel Blunt. Or Jack Youngblood was a big deal. I mean, I wasn't a big Jack Youngblood fan. I just I just knew who he was. I knew the legend of Jack Youngblood. And when I saw him, it just, that's Jack Youngblood. Somebody said, yeah, that's him. I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, and... uh so that was that was just a bit. It wasn't there was anybody I wanted to meet or had to meet. I met most of the guys that I would have known or would have needed to know. And but just you know, it's, but for them, each of them, whether you knew them or not, to just welcome you into their the Hall of Fame family, it was pretty special.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a special fraternity. Uh, only three hundred some odd players in there out of what millions who have played the game. So. Numbers speak for themselves, you know sometimes you these guys I've heard Hall of famers say, and this is of course, in jest, but you know at night in the Hall of Fame, you know when it gets dark, some of the busts start talking to each other. You know, if, who do you th- who do you think your bust would want to talk to uh, of all the people you're surrounded by all those legends in that hall of fame
1: well i I'd like to think that the LSU guys would get together first. So it would be Jimmy Taylor and Steve Van Buren, Wyatt Kittle, of course, now myself and Johnny Robinson, and uh, so that's the first guys to just kind of trade stories about our times at LSU, and then I would hope that all you know, like the old linemen, all the guys that are in there, the you know Jimato, Munchak, Bruce Matthews. I would expect that I would get treated like a rookie in the room, <laughs> but but, uh, but also I think that would be pretty cool.
0: Hey, Kevin, we were talking a couple of weeks before your induction ceremony, and you thought you'd be really, really emotional right from the outset of your speech, but I thought you held it together really well. There might have been a couple of, a couple of tears around the middle, but uh, I thought you held it up pretty well.
1: Yeah, well, what nobody saw was the wreck that I was behind stage during <laughs> the the presentation part. So when they, the, my wife was my presenter, so when they were playing her video, she's on one end of the stage, I'm on the other, we're looking across backstage at each other, and I'm a wreck. I'm like bawling and holding it back in. She keeps looking at me, pointing at me, telling me to cut it out, stop crying or whatever. And so, uh, so I did, I was able to hold it together, but you know, somebody told me the more you practice an emotional speech prior to you giving it, the less likely you are to break down during the speech. Mm-hmm. And I practiced it maybe 15, 10, 15 times aloud, uh, on teleprompter in a private room. So I knew where the emotional parts were going to be. And when I wrote it, I specifically put my family at the very top. Uh-huh. I knew that would be the most difficult part of it, but, uh, I thought I did okay. Got through it and, you know, so I look down and see my dad's crying, and my mom, and then my brothers, and I talk to my son, and he's a total mess. And and uh, normally I would have just broken down at the sight of anybody in my family crying, but I, I think I held together more than any of them did.
0: So you had a lot of uh, like game reps beforehand, like football. You know, you repped it I, a lot, and I did. <laughs> You got through it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I love
1: exactly what I did.
0: I loved how you you know you mentioned your teammates like Vinny and Wayne and you know your old coaches and i know that had to feel really special for them just to be included in that speech
1: well it did you know i i felt like it was important that i recognized those people that played a part in my career particularly my teammates um and you know a lot of times i i think men in general don't express their feelings or emotions about other men to each other and I felt that it was important that Wayne and Benny and those guys knew how important they were to me. And then, more importantly, the, the guys that nobody ever talks about, the equipment guys and the trainers, that are they're behind-the-scenes guys that without them, you know, you don't have the right equipment or you're not getting healthy. And so it was important that I recognized all those guys that played a part in my career as well.
0: And I thought it was interesting that you mentioned Bill Belichick. You know, Jet fans hate him, of course. And what, did you get any blowback from any Jet fans on that, putting Bill in your speech?
1: No, I really didn't. And, you know, and but again, my speech was about my journey, not about rivalries, not about you know, teams I didn't like and players I, did, I hated. It was about what made me the player that I was. And and Belichick's defenses were. Uh, it was a mind puzzle to me. Every time I played against him, I felt there was a, a challenge for me to call because you know, everybody. I called my blocking schemes and I called the pass protection schemes. And so for me, it became a mental challenge. And every time I faced him, to to actually you know have to had to make me a better player, and it did. And so I felt it was important that that he knows, and not that he needs it, um, but for me it was important to know that he played a part of me becoming the player I was because of what it made me have to do to prepare for his teams.
0: That's interesting. I was just curious, at any point in your career when you were a free agent, did was there an opportunity to play for the Patriots at any point?
1: Well, after Mangini cut me with the Jets, um, <laughs> I, my first free agent visit, I actually went up to New England for, for a day, spent time with Bill and uh, Scott Pioli, and they were just kind of, you know, it was more kind of a feel and see, what you know, what's your thought process, that kind of thing, and I told Bill at the time, I said, I'm not looking to break the bank, I'm just looking to play somewhere, it's got to be the right fit for not just me, but for my family. I mean, ultimately, if you're a competitor, you want to play on a team, that's going to give you an opportunity to win a championship, but for me, that opportunity was never greater than what's best for my family. And for us moving to Tennessee, it was that was the best move for us. But it didn't work out, you know, and I went there and then I went to Miami and spent a day down there with, with Nick Saban and Zach Thomas and those guys and um, but the best fit for me was to go to Tennessee, and that's why I ended up my career there.
0: And of course, you capped your career. I mean, in uh, great fashion. You know, Chris Johnson rushes for two thousand yards. Uh, what a way to end your You know, your career with a two thousand yard back. You know, that's uh, that's pretty special.
1: It was. It was. It was nice to have that. Um, I felt very confident about where I was at in my career at that point in time, and. And for us to have a season, and Chris was a special running back, Uh, the way he ran the ball and and the way Mike Heimerdinger was our coordinator at the time and how we found ways to give him the ball and space and things like that. But I had a good group of offensive linemen, too. We were pretty close-knit guys. Um, It kind of equaled the group that we had back in the – like 2001, 2002, 2000 era with the Jets. I mean, just rode through good guys and got along really well together and, and we played well together. And uh, and that, that made it even more special when I retired to know that the, I went out on top, not just as a pro bowler and all pro, but also to have a 2,000-yard running back.
0: And, uh, Jet fans will fondly remember the 2004 season when you guys, the offensive line was just clicking on all cylinders and Curtis became the oldest running back in league history to win the rushing title. Uh, he won it by a yard, uh, at the age of 31, which is just incredible. And he was a, he was a beast that year and you guys, up front, what a job! Just what are your recollections about? Just the uh, just the chemi- chemistry between you know you you five up front and Curtis. It just seemed like an unbeatable combo that year.
1: Yeah, we had a really good group of offensive linemen that year: Jason Fabini, Pete Kendall, myself, Brandon Moore, and I want to say it was Adrian Jones a right tackle. I think mm-hmm. that's what it was. And um but we knew that we were going to have to win the game, run the ball, and, and Curtis did a great job that year. And a lot of people didn't know Curtis had a knee sprain that year, and he fought through it, never missed a snap. And uh you know, and and the other remark, the more remarkable thing about it is, is we used to joke around about with Curtis that he never could break the big one, like he we called him caught from behind, curtain in the locker room, because <laughs> he always got hogged down but what people don't realize and I mentioned it in our speech my speech is that his longest gain of that season was only 25 yards and it was in the snow game against Pittsburgh and and that was the more remarkable thing that he did it on 5 and 10 yards at a time And at 30 carries a game. And there's running backs nowadays that don't even touch the ball 30 times a game, whether it be run and pass. But he carried the ball 30 times a game that year or somewhere up like upper 20s. And, And we all knew that the more he carried it, the better he got as the game went along. And that's what he built that season upon, and that was a pretty special season for all of us.
0: Yeah, just classic Curtis, just consistency all the way. It was actually Kareem McKenzie the right tackle that year.
1: Uh, Kareem, okay. Yeah. yeah. Adrian came the following year. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So all you guys started 16 games that year. Brandon started 13, and, and the other uh, four started 16. So you guys had a you know, c- continuity, which of course was a big, a big deal and great chemistry. Um, was that uh, was that a career highlight? What are some of your career highlights? Uh, just to go off the top of your head,
1: um, the AFC Championship game was special. Um, you know, winning that game. I think we beat Jacksonville the week before to get to the championship game, and to uh, so playing that close to the Super Bowl was really, really neat. The Monday Night Miracle game was great. Uh, oh, the yeah. game after the you play to win the game speech. and a matter of fact, I think you're the ones who asked Herm whether or not we were going to just shut it down. And he gave the guys, you know, we play to win the game. We were 0-6 at the time. We make the playoffs that year. Um, you know, so those are games in the Jets history that I remember fondly. Uh, every time we played Miami, it, it's just like we had their number for that long stretch of period and stretch of time. Uh, but, yeah, I think more than just games or moments that stood out as memories for my teammates, like, I, I mean, tell you, the 98 – or the Monday Night Miracle game, Jay, you know, people don't know that Vinny was drawing routes up on his chest in the huddle, and we were just, you know, calling everything by the seat of our pants, and, and it worked out. And, um, you know, the Baltimore game, we go in, and it's not a great memory, but one of those seasons we played Baltimore at the end of the year – we beat Baltimore. We win the division and go into playoffs. If we lose to Baltimore, we're out of the playoffs altogether. And we ended up losing to them. Yeah, I remember um, that. Not, yeah, so that was tough. And then beating San Diego on the last second field goal to go to the second round of the playoffs, but then losing because we missed two field goals—one in regulation, one in overtime—against Pittsburgh. That was tough. Uh, and that was, I was—I think that was old four seasons. Yeah, and, it was. Yeah. You know, so, it, it, so it's it those games, and then of course later in my career. The game and my last game of my career is the game that Chris, Chris Johnson goes over 2,000. That same season, we played Cardinals early in the year. We had less than a minute on the clock. We had the ball in the minus one yard line, and we took it 99 yards and scored on a walk-off touchdown to win the game. Um, my first year, I think it was my first second year in Tennessee. We're playing against the Colts. The Titans haven't beaten the Colts in a number of years, or like multiple games. And we kicked a 51-yard field goal at the end of the game to win the game against them. So there's some great memories, but again, it goes back to my teammates, and you know, I'm always fond of the Thursday night dinners we had with the old line together, and just kind of hanging out and just getting to know one another, and really having a good time, and um, you know, those those are things that really mean more than anything than the games themselves.
0: Just for the record, it was actually Judy Batista who asked Herm the question that prompted. Oh, the, was it the, Judy? The, the, yes, I was
1: you. No, uh, I wish
0: I could take credit no, I, for it, but Judy was with the New York Times at the time, and now she's with the NFL Network. Okay. She got she asked the question, and Herm just took it from there, and and the rest is history. But uh, that that was. But I was there. That was a great moment for sure. Um, I just it wa- was
1: crazy.
0: I, yeah, it's crazy. So, what do you? This is an odd question, but so you get home from Canton, what do you do with your gold jacket? I mean, do you do you take the gold jacket? <laughs> It to the dry cleaners to get it cleaned or you, do you take it to I, work what? Or what
1: do you do i we got back on monday after the the, the celebration weekend and just kind of sat down unpacked all my clothes and then i packed everything back up because i had to go to training camp the next day and so my gold jacket stayed in its cover i put it in my truck and i went to i went to training camp with it uh-huh. on tuesday and so i got up to camp Tuesday morning just in time for the walk-through for our team walkthrough, and I walked down the hill with my gold jacket on and oh. I went to practice with my gold jacket on that's cool and uh yeah so that was that was a great moment and then I put it back up and it's it's gonna go to the dry cleaner it's gonna hang there until my next thing I gotta be in so uh, but I'll never have to wear a sport coat again. I always have one available, and <laughs> I don't have to worry about wearing another suit to yeah. anything else.
0: That's that's the suit of a lifetime. So that's... Uh, no doubt. You don't need another blazer when you have that. I just want to ask you two quick questions about um, the current Jets. You know, they signed a new center, Ryan Khalil, and uh, he was retired. He came out of retirement, and he's working his way back into shape, and uh, he's not practicing fully yet, but the Jets expect him, uh, big things out of him. Do you know Ryan? He's been around for 12 Years, what kind of center do you think he can be for them?
1: Yeah, I don't know him personally, but I know of him. I watched him play over the years. I think he's a great player. It's a good opportunity for the Jets to bring in a veteran guy to help that offensive line out. Uh, you know, since you know Nick has retired, they've kind of played a, a carousel of of centers, and and you know, that's one thing. You know, it's unfortunate for the next guy that gets there because the, the, that's one position that the New York Jets fans have come to really, really understand and how the importance of it started with me and then, of course, with Nick. And so they had a run of, like, what, 19 years of really good center play? Yeah. And uh, so, but, you know, Ryan's been around a long time. He had some great success when he was with the Carolina Panthers. And, uh, you know, he's going to bring... He's going to bring a, you know a veteran presence to the offensive line and, and to a young quarterback. So hopefully he can have a calming influence on those guys. But look, he's, he's like a five-time Pro Bowler and he's all-pro guy, So he knows what he's doing. His game's a little bit different than what mine was. I think he's a little bit you know heavier than I was at the time, a little bit smaller, but. Uh, but he's a good player and he's going to make guys around him better
0: in your experiences how can a center like that who's so savvy and, and exper- experienced and smart how can he help a young quarterback like a Sam Darnold
1: <laughs> well because like he, he's seen it all there's everything there's nothing that a defense can throw at him that he hasn't seen or that he's aware of He's played against all the coordinators that that they're going to face this year. He understands Belichick's schemes, you know. So for him to be able to make calls based off the tui- intuition that Sam Darnold might not have yet, you know, that definitely takes the pressure off of him, you know. And then you know, he's played in big games before, so the game's not bigger than him, and you know, and and so he can be a calming influence to a young quarterback and to be able to you know help that offensive line make the calls and. And those kind of things, but then proving physically that he can he can handle his own business, it just it permeates throughout the entire offense. And you know, I don't know what kind of leader he is—whether he's a vocal guy or just leads by example. I think the best ones kind of do a little bit of both. Uh, but you know, that's the things that you would expect a, a veteran player like himself to be able to bring to an offense. A lot like what I did when I went to the Tennessee Titans. There was a, a leadership void on offense, and and Jeff and those guys brought me there to to fill that void and it it really played dividends for the team and organization.
0: Yeah, you just can't, you can't overstate how important leadership is. I mean, it's just so important in the locker rooms nowadays and uh, I'm wondering, have you ever blocked for a guy, a runner like a Le'Veon Bell? He he's so patient. Like he'll, you know, his style. He'll wait in the backfield. He'll wait. He'll wait, and very methodical. You ever block for a runner like that? And how uh, how do you Curtis adjust Martin, your yeah. style?
1: Curtis Martin. Curtis was a patient runner. I mean, he really was. And there's times that he would just sit behind the blocks and wait for things to open up. Uh and a lot of what we did with Curtis though was like we knew and he understood our blocking schemes enough to where he knew where the holes were going to be. And we knew where the cuts were going to be. But that was, a, you know, it's over eight year career, a course of eight years that we kind of developed that relationship. Um, I played with Chris Warren in Seattle. He was another one of my thousand yard rushers. And he was, a, you know, the, the saying in, in football running back and off those lines is, you know, slow to the hole speed through it. And that's kind of what Chris Warren did. And, you know, that's what you described lately on bell and, He played behind an offensive line at Pittsburgh with Mike Munchak, and the schemes that they ran were just exactly built for that. You know, press the hole as long as possible, be patient with it, don't pass up your run offensive lineman, and then take the cut when you have to. You know, the best cut is no cut, and uh, that's the way he runs the ball.
0: Oh, that's interesting, very interesting stuff because the Jets will be going through that transition soon enough as soon as Le'Veon gets on the field. uh Kevin, I can't thank you enough. This has been uh really informative and just just a really cool trip down memory lane Now you will be here in New Jersey. Uh, on uh, October 21st. The Jets are honoring you at uh, their Monday night game against the Patriots. Uh, I'm sure you're fired up about that, just to get in front of the home fans, you know, get your Hall of Fame ring and the whole... You'll have your gold jacket, I assume.
1: Uh, Yeah, I'll I'll leave the green uh, Ring of Honor jacket in the closet, and uh, it's, it's been my first time back since I got inducted to the Ring of Honor, so I'll get to see my name on the board again, and and uh I think it was just appropriate to be a, a Monday night game. Well now I know the crowd's going to be there the last time I was there later in the season. The crowd was kind of small, but uh against the Patriots nonetheless, so to be there against a in you know, a a divisional rival you know on the the biggest stage on football during the week is monday night and so I'm looking forward to it. i will see some of my teammates and some old teammates and some old coaches. So it'll be exciting.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing you then. I can't thank you enough. I know you got to get back to training camp at Arizona State. Best of luck this season. And congratulations on just everything. It's so well-deserved.
1: Hey, Rich, thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. And I'll see you in October.
0: All right. Thanks, Kevin. And welcome to the third quarter. This is the blindside. This is where you can try to blindside me with some questions on Twitter. And we always get a great bunch of questions from our loyal followers, and I really appreciate that. Let's get right to it. Uh, at Marty Levine, I know he's a loyal follower. Uh, he says, uh, Gay suggested Greg Williams can create schemes to counterbalance weak cornerback play. Other than conjuring up Klecko and Gastineau in their prime, what can Williams do to protect his cornerbacks? Great question, Marty. And, you know, I was talking to former Jets coach Rex Ryan this week, He had a situation in 2014 where the Jets cornerbacks were. It was actually a worse situation than they're in now. They were decimated. And he said Greg Williams can get around it in that he plays very simple schemes on first and second down. He plays cover two and Tampa two on first and second down. And when you play those schemes, you can protect your corners with safeties. So they'll be able to get by on first and second down. Now, the problem is going to be on third down because that's really where Greg, Greg Williams makes his money. He gets very exotic, a lot of pressure schemes, and he puts a lot of pressure on his corners. So that's going to be the issue that he's not going to be able to scheme around is the third down. And we all know third down is the money down in football Uh, next question from at Danny bags one. Do you really think Darnold has the goods to be an elite quarterback or just an average to good quarterback? I feel like his interceptions are going to drive me crazy. I know it's part of the package and that's who he is, but I just hope we don't lose games because of it. Uh, Yes, I do think he has the goods to be an elite quarterback. You just see all the physical and mental traits, especially the mental traits. Uh, He's going to throw some picks. Look, he did it in college he did it last year with 15 picks and 13 starts. I think the number will get lower, but he's got a gunslinger mentality. You know, he's going to try to fit some balls into some tight windows, and there's a risk-reward factor there. I know Gase has been trying to get him to be a little bit more conservative on first and second down with the risk-reward, but there's going to be some picks. But I, I do think the potential far outweighs the downside with a guy like Sam Darnold. I just I just think he's got everything. He's just got to get some experience. Next question from at the Jet Press. Joe Douglas has been aggressive and proactive with many holes on the roster thus far. Will he be that way at cornerback? Would the Jets dare make a bold trade for a star corner? Jalen Ramsey, Xavier Rhodes. Uh, wow. I think Jet fans need to calm down a little bit and lower the expectations here. Teams are not trading elite corners. They they just don't grow on trees. There has to be a very unusual circumstance. Now, Ramsey is going into the last year of his deal, but the Jaguars want to win now. I mean, they don't need a draft pick for next year, so they're not going to trade Jalen Ramsey. And so Joe Douglas, I don't even know if he'd want to give up a premium draft pick for a corner, because then you hurt yourself in the future. I think he's going to be very aggressive in the low to mid-market You know, especially when the waiver wire comes out, trying to find guys who can fill in and just hoping that Tremaine Johnson can get back healthy off his hamstring, which by the way, I think is going to take at least a month because Tremaine is not the quickest healer as we know. Uh, but no, I don't expect a blockbuster trade. I think it'll be more of the under the radar type moves to fill the, you know, fill those, uh, cornerbacks issues. And they do have issues at cornerback. Uh, okay. Next question coming from. I am John Chang. What are some of the differences you see in this regime and the previous one, both positive and negative? I, I see a, a positive. There's so much, there's such a greater level of accountability with this regime, especially on the defensive side. The players, if they mess up in practice, they get called out in the meeting. And if they don't like it, they actually have created a, a very clever fine system. It's uh Jamal Adams says they call it the feelings report. If you're too sensitive, you get put up on the board. They call it the sensitive report, the feelings report. If you re- if you don't react well, you get put on the feelings report, and you don't want to be on that report. So Greg Williams is on these guys constantly. He's trying to keep them accountable. That was non-existent under the Todd Bowles regime. So I think that's one area of a positive. I think a negative. I'm a little concerned about the separation between offense and defense. It's almost like there's two head coaches with Gase and Greg Williams. Gase always defers to Williams on defensive stuff. It reminds me of the Rex Ryan era. It was like two different teams, and it's okay for now, but when things get a little choppy and Gase has to go into that defensive meeting room and address guys, I think that could get a little bumpy. I know it was an issue in Miami when he started getting involved in the defense, so that's something that bears watching. And that is the end of the third quarter. And welcome to the fourth quarter. This is the Red Zone. It's the Red Zone because we're close to the end. And uh this is kind of a freestyle uh, uh chapter in our podcast here. I, You know, I just talk about stuff on the Jets beat. A lot of times I'll reminisce about uh, I've been doing this for 31 years, so I got a lot of stories from the past. And so we're in training camp now. And, you know, sometimes I'll get asked by some of the younger writers in the press room, you know, what are some of your favorite training camp memories? And there are so many. I'm going to put it in the book someday. But here's three that really jump out at me. And I'm really dating myself with the first one. But... It's kind of fun. So anyway, 1988, Mark Gastineau's on the Jets, of course, a big-name star pass rusher for the team. And the Jets, we're out at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, northeastern Pennsylvania. The Jets are scrimmaging against the Redskins. It's in August, and we're watching this scrimmage. And all of a sudden, this huge, this stretch white limo pulls up, literally pulls up to the sideline of the field where the scrimmage is taking place. The door opens up and all you see coming out from the press box view is just really long legs. And they belonged to Hollywood actress Brigitte Nielsen, who was almost wearing a miniskirt. It, it, she, it was very uh, tantalizing what she was wearing that day. So she jumps out of the limo Everyone on the sideline, their next turn, they're looking at her. She runs over. She jumps into Mark's arms. And meanwhile, uh, someone later told me that Joe Walton, the head coach, was overheard saying to himself on the sideline, oh, my nerves. Anyway, so this scene goes on the sideline. Mark and Brigitte Nielsen, photographers. So I ran out of the press box and ran down to the field to try to get the interviews. And, you know, that day, you know, a routine, boring scrimmage turned into a little brushed with Hollywood. So that was, that was kind of a cool memory. Another memory occurred. In 2008 at Hofstra University, where the Jets used to practice for training camp on Long Island. So they acquire Brett Favre in this trade in early August, which was just, you know, a bombshell, one of the biggest trades in jet history. And so a couple of days pass and now they're on the field for the first practice for Brett Favre. And I tell you, there were close to 10,000 people at that practice. It was insane just to see the legendary quarterback. And of course, he's the last person to come out on the practice field, kind of a um, dramatic entrance. The speakers on the sideline are Blasting Glory Days by Bruce Springsteen. And Favre walks on the field. And I have to admit, I had goosebumps. It was really a surreal moment. I turned to one of the writers. I'm like, is this really happening? Is Brett Favre really on the Jets? And it was just the crowd. I mean, every time he Through a pass and the warm-ups the crowd went nuts and it was just such a really cool moment and that's one of my favorite uh, moments and of course a not so memorable moment for Jet fans occurred in 2015 training camp Um, so Todd Bowles was scheduled later in the day for his press conference, but all of a sudden we get word he's coming down early to the press room, so we're immediately whispering what What could possibly be going on. So he walks into the press room. He's got this really serious look on his face. Of course, Todd usually had a serious look on his face. One of the writers was by the podium and asked Todd if he should bother putting his tape recorder on the podium for what was about to take place. And Todd, and maybe the most candid remark that he ever made as head coach, said, oh yeah, you're going to want your tape recorder for this. And in the next few seconds, Todd Bowles announced that Gino Smith was punched in the face by a teammate and had a broken jaw. He was going to be out for six weeks or so. The teammate, IK and Impali, was cut immediately from the team. And it was like, did I thought it was maybe an April Fool's joke or something, but then I thought, this is Todd Bowles. He's not joking. And, and so began a uh, month-long chapter had opened the door for Ryan Fitzpatrick, and and within – I am not kidding. Within an hour, the lawn outside the press room at the Jets facility in Florham Park, New Jersey, was covered with TV reporters doing stand-ups. There were news trucks, TV, ESPN. It was – everyone was out there. It was like the lawn at the White House after the president just gave an address. It was really big news. It was surreal, and I'll never forget – the day that Geno Smith broke his jaw. And, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of other players who were there <laughs> never forget it either. But anyway, just some training camp reminiscence uh, as we head towards the home stretch of the Jets training camp. I want to thank you guys for tuning in this week. This was a really great way to start off in 2019. I want to thank my producer, Jeff Scopin, for putting this all together. I want to thank Kevin Wauai, who's now an assistant coach at Arizona State University, for p- popping on with us and uh, really talking about his Hall of Fame induction. That was really neat. And uh, as I see you can get our podcasts on the ESPN platforms. You can get it on Google Play and on Apple. We're all over the place now. It's Flight Deck, and I'm psyched for this year. Stay with us, subscribe, and I promise you'll learn stuff about the Jets you didn't know before. And just remember, fourth down, when in doubt, don't punt. Go for it.